Our epistle reading for this second Sunday of Christmas comes from Philippians chapter 2. Pay close attention once again. This is God's holy word. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for its authority, for its clarity. We pray that you fill our hearts with your love and with your Holy Spirit and with understanding as you guide us into truth today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. In that satirical novel by C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters, you know the conceit of that book is there is a, uh, uh, an older, more experienced demon writing correspondence to his younger nephew, a demon in training, and the head demon makes a complaint that in heaven, everything is either silence or song. And into the midst of that silence and song, the enemy wants to introduce, our, our enemy wants to introduce noise, cacophonous, indiscriminate racket, which confuses and bewilders, noise, which negates both the silence that's required to wait for and hear God's voice, and the song which responds to God, God's voice, into the midst of that is noise, uh, and, and that's introduced by the enemy. Uh, what do you think of Lewis's observation there that in heaven, everything is either silence or song? There are examples of both in the scriptures. There are examples of silence in heaven. There are also examples of singing in heaven. In fact, singing is everywhere in heaven. And, and even when we hear the voice of God in the scriptures coming from heaven, God's voice has a musical quality to it. When God speaks, he makes music. The voice of God trumpets. There is a poetic quality to what God says. God sings, and we know this because when men are full of the Holy Spirit, what happens? Paul tells us in Ephesians, he says, don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, what comes out of your mouth? Well, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and you're making melody in your hearts to the Lord. If you're filled with the Spirit, that comes out of you in song. The Spirit leads us in singing. Every time we get a glimpse into the heavenlies, especially in the book of Revelation, we look into the heavens, everything is music. It's not noise, but ordered, organized 
sound. The angels sing. They play instruments. Uh, they play harps and trumpets. There are choirs that respond to God's actions. Heavenly angelic hymns communicate clear truths. When the angels sing, they just list God's attributes and they praise him for his mighty acts in history and in creation. And so as people made in the image of God, when we speak, we tend to sing. Speech itself is musical, unless you deliberately speak like robots and make a point of not making your voice go up or down. Who talks like that, right? We sing when we speak. We go up and we go down with emphasis. We get louder and we get softer. Our speech is, is musical. We have tone and volume. We elevate speech with long, breathy vowels or with short, percussive consonants. Our, our speech is musical. Sometimes we elevate our speech even more with poetry. We give our speech rhyme and meter. We glorify our speech even more when we put words to music. Uh, we sing and we make music when we pay attention to heaven and we learn from heaven how things are to be done on earth. If, if God's will is to be done on earth as it is in heaven, then music will be vital it will be integral to our lives because music is important in heaven. And, and, and music, not just as background noise, not, not just music as that harsh, discordant, demonic cacophony that you hear when you pull up to a stoplight, you know, that, not, not that, that, that harsh cacophony of blasphemy and profanity and confusion, but that, but that we oppose that by singing in, in an orderly way but also in a joyful way, sing heartily and loudly things that are true and beautiful and praiseworthy. The Bible is full of song. Not only do we have the book of Psalms right in the middle of the Bible, that um, spirit-inspired hymnal that the Lord has given us right there, not only do we have the book of Psalms and we have the songs of the angels in Revelation, but there are many other hymns in the Bible which rejoice in God's blessing and in his salvation. Adam, when he saw Eve, he sang of her, over her in the garden. Adam, Adam made a mixtape right there. You know, <laughs> young people, when, you, um, when your parents were uh, getting to know each other, one of the ways that we communicated was through mixtapes. We would just make all of our favorite songs, and we said, we mean all of this about you. All of this is for you. We love you, and here's, here's music. Um, Adam sang over Eve when he saw her in the garden. He broke into song. Moses and Israel sing after the Red Sea crossing, after that great deliverance. What happens when you are saved? What happens when you are delivered? You break into song. Hannah sings over her boy Samuel when she turns him over to the Lord. The opening of Luke's gospel is like a great opera. When you, when you start reading Luke's gospel, it's, it's this great musical where everyone is singing over the coming Messiah. Mary sings and Zechariah sings and the angel sings and Simeon sings. Jesus was born into a singing community. And from there, the church just keeps on singing. The church picked up on all of these songs, uh, the song of Mary and the song of Simeon, the song of Zechariah, songs of the angels. And we need... We, we realize we need to be singing these things too in addition to the Psalms. One of the things that the uh, pagans commented on about the early Christians and the early churches, they, they commented on the fact that 
the Christian assemblies were filled with loud and joyful song. These people are always singing. That was something that was uh, uh, notable about Christian worship from the early centuries. And nothing is a better metaphor for the life of the church than singing. That when we sing and our voices blend together and we're singing different parts, all of our voices are are harmonizing and supporting each other and, and glorifying each other, that we're, we're, we're actually living in that kind of harmony, supporting each other, singing in tune, blending our voices together. Our singing is a picture of our harmony and our unity and our fellowship in everything else that we do. When Jesus comes, everyone is singing around the birth of Jesus because the incarnation in particular is such a wonderful inspiration for singing. Many of our great theologically rich hymns just so happen to be Christmas hymns. Some of the greatest phrases in all of Christian hymnody just so happen to be from Christmas hymns. And the Bible has one more song about the incarnation that you may have passed over and maybe have not even realized that it is a hymn. Philippians chapter 2 Verse 6 through 11 is known as the Carmen Christi, or the hymn of Christ. And your Bible may have those verses set off as poetry in the typesetting. And if they do, that's a good choice, because this is a hymn text. This is poetry. It's possible that this was a hymn that was already circulating in the time of of Paul in in the time of the first century, and that Paul quotes this well-known hymn that everybody is already singing, or maybe Paul is the author of the hymn. We don't know for sure. Either way, it has been recognized as one of the many songs that are embedded in the text of the scriptures, and it's a Christmas hymn, which makes all kinds of sense. It's a hymn that, that rejoices in the way that Jesus humbled himself how he obeyed his father as a man to the death and then was exalted over all of creation. This song tells the story of God's son becoming man, suffering, dying, rising again, and his successful mission of doing all of this for the salvation of his people. It's also a hymn that gives us some important doctrinal information, instruction on the humanity and the deity of Christ and what the incarnation actually means. So this is a most excellent text for the second Sunday of Christmas. Paul begins this section of his letter to the church at Philippi not with the theological content that we're used to. When we're reading the Apostle Paul, and even when we do teaching and sermons, we're used to getting the theology up front And then the application. Here is the doctrinal foundation, and then here's what you do with it. Here's how you obey it. Uh, Here's the application. But now, in this place, Paul begins with the application, and then we get the theology after that. He begins with a call toward humility and a correction of self-centeredness. We're going to read a few verses at a time and work our way back through this text. Verse 1. He says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. The Apostle Paul exhorts the church at Philippi 
to pursue unity and humility and mutual affection within the body. This is not a gentle nudge of suggestions. These are some things maybe you check out and do in your spare time. Think about this, you know, if you have a few minutes. No, they have a responsibility, a, a vital duty to intentionally work toward being like-minded. Literally, he says, having the same love, to be thinking the same thoughts together, to love the same things together, not to be at odds, not to have rivalries and competition and contentiousness pulling in all kinds of different directions, but to study each other and to grow into mutual affection and understanding. That phrase there, having the same love, just popped out at me this week as if I'd never read it before. I, I, can't, I can tell you I've read... Um, uh, uh, being of the same mind. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes about that in his letter to the, um, to the Corinthians. He, he, we, we see that phrase in other places, being of the same mind, but having the same love, that we're to love the same things, that seems so extreme and radical and, and humanly impossible, that we have the same affections, love the same things. But you already experienced some of this, and you know what this is like, you exercise this when you hear someone talk about something that they're passionate about that you have no understanding of whatsoever. You have no experience. They are passionate about this dish that they had at this restaurant or this place they visited on vacation or this book that they read or the music that they, they listened to or this movie that they watched and they love and adore and cherish and are grateful for this wonderful thing and you have no experience whatsoever with it but their interest and their gratitude and their affection for this thing is infectious and it pulls you in, it draws you in and you love them and, and so loving them means that you now begin to appreciate and you love this thing that, that they love, this thing that you have no experience or, or formerly you had no interest in. Maybe you didn't even know that it, it existed. Um, uh, uh, one example of this is like when, when your 12-year-old keeps talking about Minecraft and they just keep talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. And I, I love you. I have no idea what you're talking about. In fact, I have, I have no understanding of anything that you just said, but I love you and I love that you love this thing. And so just keep talking, buddy. And I'll just keep nodding because I love you. Or when your engineer friend talks about his work and you have no understanding of what he's talking about, but because you love them and that they love this thing so much, you are swept into their love. Okay, I take back the Minecraft thing. I totally don't get that, but you can come up with a better example, I'm sure. Uh, that, that's not all that this entails, but, but it's a small example of how you can love someone or love something that you're not otherwise inclined to love. You are not otherwise inclined to love this thing that that they're giving thanks for, but you're drawn into it. This is only possible by the fellowship of the Spirit that Paul commends here in chapter two of Philippians. By the Spirit, you are supernaturally equipped to love people and to give thanks for things that you might not be naturally inclined to love. You are naturally inclined to love yourself above all things. You are naturally inclined to think highly of yourself. You are naturally inclined to love people who are just like you. I'm naturally inclined to love 
Twinkies, and monster trucks. And if it weren't for the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, that's all I would love. In fact, I wouldn't even be here right now. I'd be on a beanbag chair eating Twinkies, watching monster trucks, and be completely happy in my own little heaven, which would be hell, actually, because of God's work by his Holy Spirit, he has opened my heart to love things that I am not naturally inclined to love. But left to myself, I will only ever love myself. I will only ever love the things that, that are natural to me. But by the gift of God's Holy Spirit and by his indwelling in my, by the fellowship of the triune God through the Spirit, I am pulled into a greater love that is outside myself. And to love you who are unlike me and to love others who are unlike me. And this is just, we're just scratching the surface of what it means to have the same love, having the same love. And he adds to this, to be of one mind, that we think the same thoughts together. This is only possible if we interact with each other, if we read the scriptures together, if we study and talk about these good things together. We sharpen each other. We may begin very far apart, but we move toward each other. Always, always, always people of God move toward each other, not away from each other. Don't pull apart, pull together to pull and move toward each other. But, but this cannot happen. This, this, this having the same mind and having the same love will not happen if you isolate yourself, if you pull yourself away, if you think you have everything you need all by yourself. I have been in pastoral ministry since 1994. I was ordained for the first time in 1994, almost 30 years, and I have never known, I have never known a single Christian in all that time to thrive in isolation from the body of Christ. Never one, not one. I don't have one example. I don't know anybody who has abounded in fruitfulness in isolation from the body of Christ. It does not happen. I have lots of examples of people whose lives fall apart in isolation from the body. Lots and lots of examples of that. I, know I have many examples of hypercritical people who have all kinds of complaints about the church and the people of the church. They have all kinds of complaints about the teaching and the ministry and the families of the church. They all, all have all kinds of, of complaints who also come to worship maybe once a month or maybe twice a month. They've never been to a prayer meeting. They've never been to a men's study. Their kids don't participate in the, in the youth Bible studies, but they're experts on everything that we're doing wrong. Why are they so out of sin? Why are we so happy? Why are we so joyful? Why are we so thankful? Why are we so uh, 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 loving the same things and helping each other and correcting each other and encouraging each other? Well, why are they so far off? It's because they haven't made it a priority. It is not uh, their effort. They haven't seen it as their duty to have the same mind, to be of one accord, to love the same things. It's not a priority for them. And so they grow bitter and they grow hardened, and they grow apart, and, and what happens invariably, invariably, you can put this in writing and sign my name to it, invariably, their life collapses. Invariably, their house falls apart because they have not obeyed this command to grow together, to love the same things, to be of the same mind. Now, now this all seems impossible. 
It all seems impossible. We're coming from so many different directions, so many backgrounds, and so many, so many life histories and so many places. It seems impossible that we would ever get on the same page. But Paul says this is possible if there's any consolation in Christ. If there's any consolation in Christ. What, what does he mean by that? That's, that's a rhetorical device. What do, you, what do you mean, Paul, if there's any consolation in Christ? Of course there's consolation in Christ. Jesus is the consolation of Israel. That's what Simeon calls him in Luke chapter 2. In, in 2 Corinthians 1.5, Paul says, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. What that means is Christ is the encouragement. He is the comfort. He is the basis of our confidence and hope for unity and peace together. He, if there's any consolation in Christ, refers to the fact that if, if God has bridged the gap between his holy majesty and our utter total depravity, if he has bridged that gap in Christ, if, if God and man can be brought together and restored in fellowship in Christ, then it is also possible to restore man to man, for us to live in unity and fellowship, if, if we imitate Christ. What specific attribute of the Lord Jesus are we to imitate? Verse 3, he tells us, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but people are selfish. Have you picked up on that? Have you noticed that? That people are naturally selfish. Everyone's basic priority is their own comforts, their own wants, their own self-preservation and protection. Our default mode, our natural state in the flesh is to act in our own interests and to secure by whatever means necessary, the things that we want. And what is it that you want? It may be something different from the person next to you. You may want pleasure or power or respect or safety or control or freedom or peace or happiness or significance or success or wealth. Whatever it is that, that cranks your tractor, whatever it is that makes you the happiest, whatever it is that really is that thing that you want, you live, and we all live naturally, apart from Christ, we live in this hyper-aggressive, hyper-defensive stance. I've got to get what's mine, what's coming to me, and I have to fight everybody else around me to keep it. We're all dogs here, and there's one dog bowl with a limited supply of everything we need. And if I don't fight you for it, then I'm not going to get what I need, and I'm going to be left on the outside. So get out of my way. I'm going to take what's coming to me. We don't trust that these things will be added to us by a loving, gracious, sovereign, heavenly Father. If we are patient, if we defer our own glory and defer our own benefits for the blessing and comforts of others. Paul calls us to the exact opposite of that dog-eat-dog -dog mentality. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. What are we allowed to do through selfish ambition? What are we allowed to attain through selfish ambition? What motives are we allowed to pursue through selfish ambition? What? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. What does the Bible say is commendable about selfish ambition? Nothing, he says, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. 
if everyone in your workplace had that as their uh, motto, as their mantra, your business would run like this well-oiled machine. If everyone in your family would esteem others more highly than themselves, you would never have family drama ever again. If you and your spouse would emblazon this on every doorpost of your house and write it on your forearms, if you would hear and obey this to esteem others more highly than yourself, if you would do this, you will never have another marriage meltdown. You will never have another major conflict. But we don't do that. We hurt and we offend and we injure each other when we act like we're better than everyone else And our demands, our time, our priorities are more important than everyone else's. In short, it's an extreme abundance of pride and 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 a critical lack of humility. Paul doesn't deny that we do have things to look after with our own affairs, with our, with, our, uh, with our own duties, but he says our own interests are not our only responsibility. Verse four, again, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, do look out for your own interests. Let, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You must work to eat. You must take care of your property and take care of your family and protect and provide for them. But your duties do not end at your property line and your responsibilities do not end with your family. The scriptures repeatedly and in many places call us to look out for the interests of others. God's law, the 10 commandments requires me to look out for my neighbor's life, for his reputation, his property, his marriage, Occasionally, I'm tempted to to flirt with full-on libertarianism. I I just want to go full libertarian. Leave me alone. Let me do my own thing, and I'll leave you alone, and we'll just do our own thing. And that that even goes into just like full anarchy. Just don't tell me what to do, and I won't tell you what to do, and I'll have my little homestead, and you do your thing, and we won't ever have to deal with each other, just me and my family, and, and, and leave me alone. Uh, but then I realize, I, I think those things, and, I, and then I read God's law, and I said that's absolutely incompatible with, with a consistent application of God's law because I am not an island. I am not a sovereign citizen. I am not free to do whatever I want to do. Uh, God's law requires us to look out for our neighbor, for his life, for his property, for his for his well-being. And that's what Paul says here. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I am required to do that. And, and it's here after saying this, after giving us this application, and now Paul gives us the theology. He gives us the theology in the Carmen Christi, in that Christ hymn, where he displays Jesus as the preeminent model of human selflessness and humility. Paul writes here, here's the mind that I want you to have. Here's the attitude. Here's the orientation toward life that was in Jesus that you must imitate. I'm going to read this again and listen to it as as if it were a song. Now, translated into English, it doesn't rhyme. It doesn't have the same meter that that we would recognize as a hymn. But listen to it um, as, as a hymn. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he begins to quote the hymn who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. 
and being found in the appearance uh, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here in Christ is the humility of God. When we talk about the attributes of God, if I were to ask you what is God like, you would mention his holiness, you would talk about his sovereignty, you would talk about his power, his wisdom, his love, his grace, his glory, you might talk about his covenant mercies, but we usually don't think of humility as an attribute of God. In fact, humility stands at the far end, at the extreme opposite of, of what we normally think God is. Isn't humility the antithesis of God's power and might? We might think God is everything but humble. And why shouldn't he be everything but humble? He's God. And yet, here is Paul writing, you be humble, you put away your pride, you put away your conceitedness and self-seeking, and you do that because your God isn't like that. Your God is not conceited. Your God is not prideful. Your God is humble. How do we know that? Look at Jesus. Look at the cross. There is your God. Through this hymn, he walks us through the incarnation, beginning with the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, did not come into existence in Mary's womb. He doesn't come into existence at the manger. Remember we read uh, John 1 last week where the Word was with God at creation. And we see throughout the Old Testament several appearances of God. And there's every reason to believe that, that when God even shows a part of himself, he's revealing himself through the second person of the Trinity. He's revealing himself through Jesus. And so it, it stands to reason that it was Jesus who appeared to Abraham. Jesus wrestled with Jacob. And in Philippians, you see that Paul says Jesus existed before taking on the likeness of men, before taking on the human frame. Every Lord's Day, we testify this in the creed. We, we, we confess that Jesus, for us men and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Uh, that, that he existed before the incarnation, but in the incarnation, he was made man. And Paul says it here. Paul says that he took on the form of a bondservant, that he was in the form of God. Form is kind of a tricky word there. Form may not be the best translation to our ears even, even though it's the word that most English translations go with, but we have to stop and say, what, what, what is being said there by form? When you think of form, you think general shape, something similar to, but not really. If I take a crayon and a piece of paper and I draw the shape of a horse, you say, well, that looks like the form of a horse, but that's not really a horse. You can't put a saddle on it and ride it. It's just the form of a horse. Um, so something is meant more, Jesus is not simply an approximation of God. One English translation um, says he was in the very nature God, and he took on the very nature of a servant. It's the same word in both places, nature of God, nature of a servant, and I think that's closer to the meaning. 
And it's the only thing that makes sense in Paul's train of thought here. This, this is the point. Jesus isn't a facsimile of God. Jesus is not an approximation of God. He is very God of very God. And, and, and he is the, in nature God, very nature of God. And now we see how God humbles himself in Jesus. Jesus was fully God before the incarnation. He was a member of the Trinity and is a member of the Trinity. He is the son in relationship to the father. He had equality within the Godhead, but rather than using his power as God to his own advantage, rather than seizing more power and more glory and more privileges, he deferred his divine rights and he took on the form of a bondservant. And in doing that, he took on the limitations of a human body. He hungered, he thirsted, he felt physical pain, he experienced discomfort, he experienced exhaustion. In his human body, he couldn't be everywhere at one time. He was bound to a very specific place and time. Verse seven says, he made himself of no reputation. Another translation of that in some, in some translations is he emptied himself. I like that. He emptied himself. In, 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 in that, it means that all that he was given as the son of God, all that he had as the second person of the Trinity, all of that he gives away and he pours out for us. He doesn't use his divine attributes and his privileges for his own comforts. He doesn't use them to demand respect, to surround himself with glorious luxuries, but to pour himself out for us and for the salvation of the world. As God, he could have considered his glory too essential to his own identity to lay aside for sinners who don't deserve it. I'm not gonna lay aside my glory. They don't deserve this. They don't deserve this at all. He didn't do that. He could have thought his position in the heavenlies was too high to condescend to sinners. He could have thought that his power was too great to risk laying it aside for sinners, that his heavenly possessions were too valuable to give up for sinners. But he doesn't hold on to any of these things. His blood was his, but he shed it. His back was his, but he submitted it to the whip. His brow was his, but he submitted it to the crown of thorns. His hands were his, but he laid them down on the cross to be nailed to it. His life was his, but he gave it up in obedience to the Father for our salvation. His life was his, but he gave it up in the incarnation and in his life's work, he strips away one divine prerogative after another, one advantage after another for our life, for our salvation, for our restoration to God so that we could live and so that we could enjoy him forever. The Father gives everything to the Son. The, the Father bestows on Jesus all the glory and all the riches of heaven. The son then gives himself back to the father in obedience and in submission. He empties himself of all of his prerogatives, of all of his rights. He gives himself then to the world as a sacrifice for the world. And in doing so, 
redeems the world so that he can give it back to the Father, and the Father responds to that by putting him over all of creation and crowning him with glory. Jesus gives everything away in the incarnation. He gives away everything, and the Father responds to that by making him king over everything, setting him up over all of it. Remember what we said in the beginning about um, in the beginning of Advent about the success of the gospel and the certain victory embedded in the plan of salvation. I said many times that that Lord's Day. I said the word salvation itself means God's victory. So so here we see it again in Philippians two because of the faithful humble work of Jesus. God the Father has exalted Jesus. He has given him a name far above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That sure sounds like victory to me. That sure sounds like the success of God's mission through Jesus. And what that means is right now, the tongues that blaspheme his name, the tongues that right now use his name as a curse or an oath, the tongues that rebel against his law and his rule, the tongues that will not sing his psalms or praise his majesty or give thanks to him, those same tongues will confess that Jesus is Lord. And every knee that will not kneel, every stiff neck that will not bow, every proud, arrogant, conceited, selfish man who has contempt for everything, who esteems nothing and no one better than himself, he will bow the knee and submit. That's the lens that we need to put over all of the rebellion of the world. When you're intimidated by the wickedness of wicked people, or you're disgusted by the perversions of our society, when you look at man's rebellion, when you see and hear the heathen raging, don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Put it in this context. You say, yeah, laugh it up. Scoff now. Uh, rant and rave and blaspheme all you want. I know where you're headed. You are headed for this confession. You are headed for this act of worship. Your tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Your knee will bow. Don't be intimidated. Don't fear uh, them at all. Paul's message here is that Jesus is exalted over everything because he is the exemplar of obedience and humility uh, and submission to the Father. And that if we have the same mind as Christ, if we follow him, we will share in his glory. And that glory will be evident in our churches, in our families, in our communities, our our, our relationships that are identified by their affection and mercy. This emptying, this humbling of Jesus in the incarnation cuts across all of our haughtiness, all of our pomposity, all of our self-importance, and all of our hubris. We look at Jesus and we say, this is who God is. Who is God? How do you know what God is like? Look at the cross. That is is your, that is your God. That's what he is like. And, and here's the mind-blowing thing. Jesus is objectively better than us. W will anybody disagree with me on that? Jesus is 
objectively better than us by every single metric that you can produce. Jesus is holier, he is mightier, he is more faithful, he is more charitable, he is a better brother, he is a better shepherd, he is a better friend. In every single area, he is more virtuous than anyone ever to live. We don't beat him in anything. We are unlike him in every single dimension, in every way. And yet, he esteemed our lives and he esteemed our salvation more important than his life and more important than his station in heaven. Our redemption was more important than his comfort. Jesus didn't empty himself to save people who were just like him. Jesus emptied himself to save people who were in every dimension, by every metric, worse than he was. And now the apostle Paul says, when God commands us to be humble, He's not rubbing our face in our creatureliness. God is not exalting himself over us in a prideful way. God, because of the cross, because of Jesus, God is saying, be like me, live like me, treat others like I treat them, imitate me, imitate my humility. So then who are we to esteem ourselves better than someone else? Who are we to exalt ourselves in our own minds? Why are we always vindicating ourselves and, and justifying ourselves in everything? Why do we treat other people made in the image of God like they don't matter? Why do we do philosophical gymnastics to justify our vainglory and our pride? Esteeming others means foregoing our own comforts and privileges for the blessing of other people, even when they don't deserve it, and might I add, even when you are objectively better than someone else in some area. We do this as teachers. In, in, teacher, in, in teaching, you are objectively better at something than your student. But you esteem them more highly than yourself when you humble yourself to teach them. And because of the work of God's Holy Spirit in you, and on you, you, people of God, are objectively more loving, you are kinder, you are more respectful than a pagan. And yet you can esteem them more highly than yourself when you humble yourself to engage them in the name of Jesus with the gospel. There's one important, important clarification, one important um, uh, 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 statement here. Um, this is humbling ourselves to bless them, bless them and love them as God defines love and blessing. Um, this doesn't require us to enter into somebody's sin or enter into somebody's insanity in order to submit to that and, 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 and adopt their twisted view of the world to, uh, to do what they want us to do. That's not at all what is required of us. But to enter into love them the way that God defines love and in his righteousness and based on his law and his expression of what pleases him. This is the mind of Christ. And once again, this is not a suggestion. Don't put this in a category of advice. Don't, don't think, oh yeah, this is going on the list of New Year's resolutions that I'm probably not going to keep anyway, but I'll put it on there and just give lip service to it. And, uh, and maybe I'll get around to it. No, no, this is a duty. This is a responsibility. The incarnation reveals who our God is. And our duty in response to that is to imitate Christ, to sing this song, to sing the Carmen Christi in 
in everyday life, in every conflict, we begin with this, how do I esteem this person more highly than myself? How is God requiring me to love this person? What pleases God in my interaction with them? To have the same mind as Jesus, what would Jesus do with this person and with this situation? Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you uh, for its clarity, and we ask that you would continue to grow us up, to give us your spirit every day, so that we can keep singing the song through our obedience, our submission to you, and in our humility. Father, make us like Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.